All right, we can get started. It's good to see you all uh, this morning. Yes, I got a recording here. So, um, yeah, we are jumping back into the essential truths of the Christian faith by R.C. Sproul. Uh, last time I did this was a little over a month ago. I was on Christology, and I remember some of you all, and we talked about the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ. Uh, today we are with another person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a very tricky doctrine because there's a lot of perspectives about who the Holy Spirit is, how he functions, what his role is in our lives, what his role is in the Trinity. And R.C. does a really good job of pulling out some very important aspects of what the Holy Spirit does specifically for us. And those are some of the things we'll look at today. So if you have the book, oh yeah, please come on in, find a seat. There's a few over here. There's a few real close. I might even move myself up a little bit. Yeah, I'll let you get settled. Anyone have the book? Does anyone own and is going through the book? I remember from last time, yeah. I need to connect with you again. Uh, the email that you gave me, I tried to plug it in and it kicked it back. So we'll see if we can get that fixed, okay? But yeah, good to see you guys. Um, yeah, it's a very helpful book. Very easy read. If you notice, the chapters are very short. They're one or two pages, right? So this is a chapter on glorification. It's this page. You flip over one page. Very short, so you can sit down for five minutes or less and read a whole section and really get some, some depth into a specific doctrine. So here's the overview of what we're going to cover today. We're going to cover the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're going to cover the Holy Spirit as comforter, the Holy Spirit as sanctifier, and then I have a little touch point on the fruit of the Spirit at the end because uh, I think it ties in really well with the Holy Spirit as Sanctifier. For those of you that don't know me, uh, my name is Matt Risher. I've been at Faith since 2019, uh, around this time, November of 2019. And, uh, and yeah, this is my wife, Bethany. We have one little girl, Noel. Uh, I serve at Spurgeon College, which is under Midwestern Seminary. I'm the director of athletics there. Uh, I've been serving there for a few years now and uh, have my master's there, pursuing my doctorate there. And hopefully in the next year we'll be done with school and be able to breathe and relax and sleep for a little bit. So chapter 41, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, how I break down each chapter, as you're going to see right here, I'm going to talk a little bit about what R.C. says. So what he's pulling from the book. What's he teaching us from the book. And then I have the next section, which will be some additional thoughts, things that I think would be helpful for us to know and understand as it relates to these chapters. So in chapter 41, he begins talking about a uh, group, a denomination, almost, uh, Neo-Pentecostalism. So maybe, many of you have probably heard of Pentecostalism, um, very similar cousin to the Charismatic Movement, and there's an understanding of the Holy Spirit that's a little unique, uh, especially compared to uh, how we would understand the role of the Holy Spirit. This group, this doctrine, they seek to define the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit based on people's experience. So it's a very experiential, very feely type group. Uh, they want to have the gifts. They want to experience the gifts, and, and that's what they're seeking earnestly. Some groups you can think about, uh, the New Apostolic Reformation, which if you're unfamiliar with this group, think groups like IHOP down south, right, in the Belton area. They're part of this New Apostolic Reformation. Uh, churches such as the Assemblies of God churches. Uh, you're going to look at events such as the Azusa Street Revivals, 
the Toronto blessings, things of that nature kind of characterize this group. This group would be part of a neo-Pentecostal movement. And again, you're thinking an experiential event over a cognitive understanding. And these two things are going to contrast each other as we go out throughout all these sections because I think something we're going to see that's beautiful, something we're going to see that's unique about an orthodox, a central Christian understanding of religion compared to other religions and even compared to cult religions within Christianity is we're very cognitive. We're very knowledge-based. We're very knowing, thinking, understanding compared to every religion in the world. It's a very unique part of who we are. So this group, the Neo-Pentecostal group, they value experience over cognitive religion. Uh, many in this camp, they view the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second work of grace. You have this initial work of grace where God saves you, and then in this camp, how they would understand it. And again, R.C. doesn't agree with this camp, so we're just giving an overview of, of what this group teaches and as he explained it. Uh, so you're saved, you come to know the Lord, you have a new heart. And then some point after that event, there's a second work of grace. And during the second work of grace, it's often accompanied by a sign gift, such as speaking in tongues. And they use the pattern of Acts to say, hey, this is the normative pattern in the Christian life. R.C., as well as myself and our elders, would all argue that that's not the normative pattern. What we see in Acts is a unique pattern to birth the church to bring the gospel to many nations. And what we see today, and, and really the issue that they have, is understanding what that baptism of the Holy Spirit is. We see this error really pop up. It's not a new error. Neo, Neo means new, new Pentecostalism. It's not a new error. This isn't something unique. This isn't something that hasn't happened before. It's not just an American issue. We actually see this issue in the first century with the church at Corinth. Uh, this was a common understanding with the church of Corinth that they are to seek the spiritual gifts because that makes them seem holier. Yeah, come on in. Makes them seem holier, makes them seem more Christian than the next guy. If we look at the book of First and Second Corinthians, we know there's a lot of problems, right? It's like every chapter reading, oh, another problem here, boom, Paul's addressing another thing here. But what's the big thing that's going on in Corinthians? If we really dig in and we really go into depth and, and we start to study the book of Corinthians, uh, Dr. Thor Madsen did a walkthrough through Corinthians at our school, and it's just phenomenal to understand the book in light of the, the Greco-Roman background, in light of, of the Jewish background, in light of uh, what Paul's actually saying in his letter. And we see this group, their issue is that they're just trying to be super spiritual. They're trying to compete one with another to seem more Christian. We can argue the same is true of those in the Neo-Pentecostal religion today, that whoever has the most visions is the most spiritual because they have the most connection with God, or whoever speaks in the tongues the most is the most spiritual because they have such a connection with God where they can speak in an angelic language. So this is going on in Corinthians. They're battling a pride issue. They're trying to use their experiences to validate how Christian they truly are. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 6, 6 when he says, Your boasting is of no good. They're trying to promote and boast in all these things that they can do, all these things that make them seem better than the next guy. And he goes, your boasting's no good. Some of the things they were doing. In chapter 2, they were valuing rhetoric, speech, over substance. Also in chapter 2, we see that they're elevating their teachers over one another. Oh, you were taught from Peter? Well, I was taught from Paul. Oh, you were taught from Paul? I was taught from Jesus himself. 
what are they trying to do? They're trying to make themselves seem better. They're seeking positions of prominence as opposed to being a servant. If you have your Bible, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 real quick. Anytime I have a chance to read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I take it. It is a beautiful picture of the Christian life. It's a beautiful picture of our apostles and what they walk through to give us the text that we have in the faith that we cherish. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading in verse 8. Set the context a little bit. These believers at Corinth have been infiltrated by a group who's teaching things contrary to the Apostle Paul. Not only are they thinking things, teaching things contrary to the Apostle Paul, they're actually demeaning Paul. And they're saying that they're better than Paul. A term you can give these people are super apostles. Because they speak better than Paul, they know better than Paul, they've had better experiences than Paul. And he's just this lowly Jewish guy who kind of got them started, but they're going to bring him to the next level of Christianity. And in this section, Paul goes, well, you want to know what apostles really like? You want to know what the life of an apostle looks like? Well, it looks like this. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. It says, you have already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you'd become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, and we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, and are po poorly clothed, and we are roughly treated and homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands, which was massive dishonor in the Corinthian culture. If you're working with your own hands, you're poor. You're the lower class. And he's saying, that's us. That's the apostles. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We've become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. One note there, when he says we have become the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, the picture that the Corinthian believer would have would be of your waste bowl. Think your toilet bowl. Again, think first century. They don't have running water to flush your stuff down, so they'd have this waste bowl. And what would happen is every few days, a slave would have to empty the bowl, right? And they would have this scraper. And they'd take the scraper, and they'd take the inside of the bowl, and they would curve around the bowl, almost like you do, and I'll make a nicer example, like cookies, right? You have a little frosting thing that you pull the, to get the rest of the cookie mix out to put it on the tray. So you scrape the bowl, and as you're flicking the dung off of the scraper, they would call that the scum of the earth. And you say, you know what we are to the world? We're that. We're this gross, disgusting, reviled action. So what's Paul doing here? What's Paul doing in the text? What's he showing? He's showing your boasting is ridiculous. You want to know the Christian life? It's, it's a grind. It's a walk. It's not one of honor in this world. It's one that's going to be reviled. And guess what? When we revile as true apostles, we don't revile back. We bless. You want to know what my life looks like? You want to know how Paul the apostle walks? We walk through Acts and we see, well, that kind of looks like his life, right? He's reviled and he's arrested and he's persecuted. But he's not destroyed. 
See, these super apostles were trying to teach, no, you do these wonderful things and God blesses you and you're just amazing and you become wealthy. We kind of hear that before, huh? That's a doctrine that's out there. And Paul goes, that's not the case. That's not promised. What you're encouraged to do, what you're called to do is be faithful. And for us apostles, what the faithfulness looks like is like the prophets. No one wanted to be a prophet in the Old Testament. That'd be like the worst thing ever for the Lord to come and speak to you and say, you're going to be a prophet. If you knew what that meant, you'd be like, uh, please, someone else. Because I've seen what they've done to all the other prophets. Same thing with an apostle. But these men are coming. They're boasting, hey, we're apostles. And Paul goes, you don't understand what an apostle is. So this is going on in Corinth. And it's the same issue that we see today. Seeking spiritual gifts to elevate one's status. But what's going on in 1 Corinthians? And what can help us understand the most important thing today? What did they lack? Well, the thing they lacked in Corinth, and I think a thing that many lack today, is they lacked love. They lacked the most significant fruit of a genuine believer. They were seeking to elevate themselves over one another. And as we see in this Neo-Pentecostal group today, if you just do some YouTube searches and start seeing some of these men who are speaking, what are they trying to do? Build big platforms, make themselves look amazing, make themselves look like they have an interaction with God and a relationship with God that you could only experience at 9.99. And he goes, no, the most important thing is love. First Corinthians 13, right? We have this beautiful, uh, almost poetic type prose put before us talking about all these wonderful spiritual gifts and Paul then turns and goes, without love, they're nothing. They're nothing. So we have this Neo-Pentecostal group, and RC does a really good job of exposing some of their understanding. And then he begins to teach, okay, well, then what is it? If it's not this, this second blessing, this excessive emotionalism or experientialism, well, what is it? Well, the first thing he talks about is this idea and this concept of, of regeneration versus baptism of the Holy Spirit. Are they the same thing? Well, no, they're not the same thing. But what this group, the Neo-Pentecostal group, gets incorrect is that although they're not the same thing, they signify something different, they occur at the same time. They are simultaneous in nature. The Holy Spirit is the active person in both regeneration, which is making someone new, making someone alive, giving them a new heart, and he's the active person in spiritual baptism, which refers to God's empowering of his people for ministry. Spiritual baptism is something that occurs for every Christian. If you are in Christ, you have been baptized by the Spirit. Again, something that this group doesn't teach. They teach you need to be, have this second work of grace, this second baptism. Some groups will even go as far to say, if you haven't had the second work of grace, you're not actually saved. What can that look like? What can that mean? What are some things that you might hear from your neighbors who are in this group or are caught up in this movement because this movement's huge. Like I said, Belton, Missouri is filled with people who believe these type of things. Oh, you haven't spoken in tongues? Oh, you're, you're not saved. What do you do with someone who says that? You have to be prepared. You have to think through, well, as we look at the scriptures, it seems like, and R.C. does a good job of pointing us to places where we can touch on this, it seems like the scriptures are very clear. That the same spirit who regenerates is the same spirit who baptizes, and he does this one and the same at the time of conversion. 
This is the normative function of the Spirit, to do both of these works simultaneously. So normative, that means there's points in Scripture where it actually doesn't happen like that, right? But when you go into Acts and you see those issues and you see those points, and I don't have time to go into them today, what you want to do is you want to ask the question, well, why is this not normative? If something is not normative, there's a point, there's a reason, right? Think about all of church history, right? Think about the early church, Acts. There's a lot more going on than what we read in Acts. Why was this specifically taken out, put into, why did Luke specifically write this, to put into our Bible so we would hear this story? Very helpful hermeneutic technique for you. The last thing that he touches on in this section is the understanding of Pentecost, right? Pentecost is the watershed moment in Christian history. As we look in the Old Testament, there's only a few people that were empowered by the Spirit, right? And we see the Spirit moves in in very different ways in the Old Testament than He moves in the New Testament. Pentecost showed that in the New Testament, all people would be indwelt and empowered by the Spirit. It didn't matter if you were a Jew. It didn't matter if you were a Samaritan. It didn't matter if you were a Gentile. If you were in Christ, you were going to be indwelt and empowered by the Spirit. Peter goes so far as in Acts 10.47 to show that this is how we know that the Gentiles are included in the New Covenant. He says, Can anyone forbid water? What's going on? Cornelius has come to Christ. He's come to know Him. And Peter sees it. And he goes, "Can, can Can anyone prevent these men water? Baptism? entry into the kingdom, entry into the church, that they should not be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. This Spirit is for everybody. It's for your neighbor, it's for your cousin, it's for those across the world. It is for everyone to receive through the gospel. So my additional thoughts, uh, a very helpful resource, a very dense resource, but a very helpful resource on the Holy Spirit is Gordon Fee's Empowering Presence. What Fee does here is he takes every reference, implicit or explicit, of Paul in the New Testament, and he pulls out what's going on, how should we understand the Spirit in this, in this uh, area. And he categorizes them, and he helps us get a better and further understanding. Uh, you're not going to agree with everything Fee says, but the reality is, who do you agree with everything? Right? I love John MacArthur. I don't agree with him on everything. I agree with him on a lot of things. So if you do get fee, it'll be a really helpful tool, probably one of the most helpful tools on the Holy Spirit, in my estimation. Um, but his book, it brings up some questions. Right, his book's called Empowering Presence. There's a cover right there. Well, how does the Spirit empower? What does that actually mean? What does that actually look like? Is it a mystical feeling? Is it a sign gift? Or is it something else? When we get to the Holy Spirit of Sanctifier, I'll start answering that question. That's the hook that keeps you here. Chapter 42 moves on to, uh, this is a quote I thought was really helpful uh, that he says at the end. He says, in the New Testament church, not every believer spoke in tongues, but every Christian was gifted by the Holy Spirit. And that's how he ends the chapter. And it's just powerful, it's important, because there's people out there being told that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not a Christian. And they're walking away and they're discouraged, and they're distraught, and they're broken. This isn't a made-up story. These are real people. And they need people to come beside them and say, no, you don't have to speak in tongues. If you've been born again in Christ, you have had the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and He is leading your life today. 
That's what they need to hear. Chapter 42, the Holy Spirit as comforter. This was a very short chapter, uh, but a very encouraging chapter, and a very thoughtful chapter that R.C. has for us. He starts off with this term paraclete, right? The Greek word. And it can be translated in a myriad of ways. It can be translated as helper. It can be translated as comforter, counselor, advocate. And he really sits on this word, right? If you leave this chapter, you understand what this word means, paraclete, even though it's not an English word. He starts off with teaching that Jesus was the first paraclete, the first helper. And what does that do? He really leaves you with, with the question of, wow, how amazing is that? That Jesus comes as an advocate, as a comforter, as a helper, as a counselor. A few texts that we want to point to. Uh, can I have someone turn to John chapter 14? It could be anyone. John chapter 14, and then somebody else to 1 John chapter 2. Have those words in mind. Helper, comforter, counselor, advocate. So John chapter 14, verse 16. Does someone have that one? And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And then 1 John 2, 1 John 2, uh, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So Jesus is the first helper. He's the first advocate. He's the first comforter. He's the first paraclete. And he's wonderful, right? He's amazing. He takes these 12 men plus some, and they're walking around all of Israel and Judea and even Samaria. And they're doing amazing things. And he's caring for them. He's teaching them. He's encouraging them. He's rebuking them. He's comforting them. And as he gets to his dying days, as he's walking to the cross, he teaches an amazing thing. I'm going to leave you. That's an amazing thing for them to hear. What do you mean you're going to leave us? Again, they haven't fully understood all what's going on. What do you mean you're going to leave us? Aren't you going to be their store of Israel? Well, if you leave us, what happens to us? What do we do? Then he goes, well, it's better that I leave you. Time out, Jesus. How does this make any sense? My life has been radically transformed. It's been radically changed since the day that you stepped into it. You said, come follow me, and I said yes to the end. And now you're leaving? None of it's better for me. Well, why is it better, Jesus? Because I'm sending another paraclete. I'm sending another helper. I'm sending he who will reside within you, who will change you, who will help you, who will guard you, who will teach you, encourage you, and give you boldness. So in the ancient world, paraclete was someone who was summoned to give assistance in the court of law. Hang on that for a second. Someone to come help you in the court of law. Well, what did you need? You needed the greatest lawyer to ever exist. And that's who Jesus is. And he goes to the Father and he represents you. And he's paid your fine. And you're free to go. And now the Spirit comes and he lives within you. And he's continually communicating with the Father on your behalf. R.C. gives two categories of how the Spirit comforts. Uh, one in kind of a nurturing framework and the other in a strengthening framework. 
And I think it'd be helpful to look at some of these texts. So if someone can turn to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. And read verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Right yeah, that's, that's perfect. Think of that, right? Sometimes we read text and we go, oh, that's cool. And we just move on. That's amazing. Like, that's supernatural. That's not, that's not plausible in our minds if we really start to grasp. You're going to be brought before rulers, important, powerful people that can snap their fingers, Thanos style, and you're gone. Some of you might know Thanos. Some of you might not. That's okay. And you're gone. Imagine what you'd really be walking into. Imagine the tremble that you'd have on your lips and your knees. Imagine the powerlessness you would feel. And he goes, at that moment, don't be afraid. For you have all the power you need. Every word will be given to you by the Spirit that I'm sending to dwell with you. Spirit helps us. He comforts us. He also gives us courage. I think one of the most striking things about the Apostle Paul, we look at his life and we go, man, that's a man of courage. That's a man of boldness. He doesn't care who's in front of him. He's going to preach Christ, right? Sometimes it's intimidating to us because like, man, I can never be that bold. Well, we see at the end of the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus and he goes, "Uh, can you all pray for me that I may have the courage and boldness to speak the gospel of Christ? I mean, imagine that. Imagine us. We're like, wait, you? But you're crazy bold, Paul. You have all the courage in the world. I think he's teaching us something here in Ephesians. He's going, it's not me. I'm just a vessel. I'm just an instrument, and I need courage. I need boldness. I need you to, I'm going I'm to ask you to pray for me that I would have this courage, that I'd have this boldness from the Spirit to be able to preach the gospel. I don't know if I see it. Yeah, that was my question. So, with this in mind, Spirit is comforter. Here's a question. How does this understanding of the Holy Spirit impact our reading of John 16, 7? So this is what it says. Let me assure you, it is better for you that I go away. I say this because when I go away, I will send the Helper to you. But if I do not go, the Helper would not come. So understanding the Spirit, how He works in these ways, and this is like a real question. I'm not going to use this as a uh, rhetorical question. How does that impact your understanding of a text like this? We'll get one or two people. Jesus is leaving. He's going to send a helper. Here's some understanding of the helper. What do you think? Does it give you confidence? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I was just thinking that when they had questions when they were upstairs, we always have to go and Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Anyone else? Any other thoughts of how this can impact understanding of this text? Yeah. I think it takes away a lot of anxiety. 
Mm. To rely on the spirit is is counselor. It's um, yeah. Just trust trusting that uh, God and the spirit is <coughs> is able to help us. Yeah. No, amen. It's quite remarkable. If you pick up a book on the Holy Spirit, you read an article, typically one of the first lines is, one of the most forgotten persons in the Trinity, da, 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 da. Right? You read that over and over again. But then you get to a doctrine like this, and you're like, how are we forgetting about this person? Right? Yeah, go, go ahead. One other thought, and it, it makes me personally not want to quench the Spirit in any way. Absolutely. And keep a short count on sin. Mm-hmm. Confess often. That's a perfect transition to chapter 43. Yes? One comment that I would make, too, that the, the disciples, the apostles, were not very good at understanding this major paradigm shift from the old to the new. The parables of the kingdom from Matthew 13, they really didn't get it. You know, so when they come to this, it's hard to imagine the, the, uh, the change that going from the old to the new, that you know, Jesus not being there, the Spirit being there. So I, I think what it says to me is we need to be still and trust what God says, mm-hmm. even when we can't conceptualize all of that. You know, so they were struggling with the fact that, boy, this is going to change everything, but they still don't get it, you know, what, yeah. what he's doing and how this is going to be to their great benefit, not to their detriment. Absolutely. Have you ever had an experience, speaking of experiences, the uh, Holy Spirit is experiential. I don't want to take that away. It's not only experiential, that's the excess, but it is experiential. Uh, there's been moments in my life, and I'm sure there's been moments in your life, and it could be you know, with a child, with a loved one, with a stranger, where you're talking to them, right, and you're giving them counsel, you're giving them comfort, and you leave that exchange, and you're just in your mind, you're thinking about it, you're reflecting, you go, what in the world just happened? How did I think to say that? That seemed to be just on point with what that person needed to hear. What do you think those moments are? Do you think they're just moments of your own brilliance? Of your own, of your own wonder and glory? No, it is amazing to think of those moments and to think of those times. I remember in my testimony, in my story, there was a moment where I'm in shambles and I call this man who I haven't talked to in months. Right? And I look back on the story now, and in his life, he's driving to a bus stop to pick me up, a kid who's in shambles, to counsel me and comfort me. And I'm sure he has no clue what he's about to walk into. He has no clue what he's about to say. He has no clue what the outcome of this event's going to be. He's just being faithful. And he goes and he picks me up. And I'm sure if I asked him today, do you remember what you said? I don't know. But it was transformative. And it was comforting. And it was the Holy Spirit working through him. I often teach and I often tell people, because we think of this term, this understanding of God's grace to us, and sometimes we're a little bit too uh, metaphysical or too mystical. And we think that God's grace is kind of like rain, where it comes down and just kind of coats us and makes us feel something, and we're just like, ooh, okay, God's grace. A lot of times, and most of the times, even in the text, we see God's grace is exhibited through people through somebody going and shaking a hand or sitting down or giving a hug or crying with somebody, that is God's grace. You are God's grace to one another. That is how he plays it out. Not some metaphysical, mystical feeling, although there are times, again, but normatively, it's through you. 
that a revelation? Uh, how would you describe what the Spirit is doing when he directs a person to address things that he didn't know anything about? Like in a counseling type situation? Or? Well, just what you expressed. You yeah. know, I've had that experience of speaking to people and things came out. You know, some people call that prophecy. You know, mm -hmm. I got a word from the Lord. You know, others are going to call it a revelation. You know, God revealed something to me. So I, I'm just saying, how do we describe? What word would you use to describe what happened? Yeah, um, I think that's a tough one. I think prophecy has a very specific definition in the scriptures. Um, which would be what? Which again, and there's a transition from the Old to the New Testament. So the Old Testament prophecy is something looking forward, and the New Testament, I think it's still something looking forward, but with knowledge. Where the Old Testament, there's less knowledge. So Daniel, for instance, he's speaking of something he has no clue what it's going to look like. Whereas when Peter's prophesying, no, he knows the coming of Christ. He knows uh, who Christ is, and things of that nature. Um, so I think when we're gifted a, a word and, and wisdom from the Spirit. Uh, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. I haven't thought about a word to, to ascribe to that. Um, I think of texts such as ones we read in Mark, which that's a little bit different situation. I think of even, um, oh, I can't remember the text now. It's an Old Testament text where the Lord gives wisdom to the builders um, to be able to, to construct the temple. Uh, might be numbers or something. Um, I'd probably put in something in that kind of category. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if it's like, to me, it's more like having a personal relationship with the Lord. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's kind of the way I look at it. So it's like, you know, the closer we get to Him, you know, He does share things like that with us. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it continues to build confidence, right? You have those experiences, which experiences aren't bad. Don't, don't run from every experience. Sometimes our camp, if we're going to be critical of ourselves, what do we do? We run from experientialism. Right, because we've seen the excess and we, we don't want to fall into that. But don't be afraid of experiences. And we have those moments really just take and reflect and go, man, no, the Lord is, is close. He is near. Uh, touch into those psalms. Touch into those texts that I will never leave you. And go, that's, an, that's, that's what it's like. Um, we don't want a cold religion. Our religion is warm. It is very personal, right? Allah will never touch the heart of any Muslim because he's not real. He's not. Any kind of experience they muster up is fake. It's them of their own doing. When you have those experiences, when you feel the touch of the Lord upon your heart, and he maybe gives a word of wisdom, no, reflect on that. Man, the Lord is close. He is near. He is the true God. Exodus 23. Exodus 23, the building materials? Yeah. Are the builders? Uh, give the spirit of wisdom that they may make. Yeah, yep. So, yeah, that's the text I was thinking of. Perfect, yeah, Exodus. Um, so, yeah, the Spirit, it really just, it, He is so personal that sometimes we forget that. He is the forgotten person of the Trinity. And uh, my goal today is not to lead, like, just a, a reformation where now everything, you know, every thought of your heart is going to be the Spirit, but hopefully it's more. Hopefully you can reflect on Him more and push into Him more and I think the more we get to understand the Spirit, the more we get to push into the Spirit, uh, the more joy you will have, the more love you'll have, because these are the fruit of Him. We'll get to that soon. It's a teaser for later. So the last chapter R.C. has for us is the Holy Spirit as Sanctifier. 
And he begins by talking about the term holy. Why is the term holy ascribed to the Spirit? And he says it is the Spirit's role, the Holy Spirit's role, to make us holy. The Spirit, according to R.C., is called the Holy Spirit, and not so much because of his person, this is a direct quote, which is indeed holy. So his person is holy, yes, but it's because of his work, which is to make us holy. I have, do I have a question mark on there? I do. Sanctification as a process. So this was an interesting chapter for me, because I didn't agree with R.C. very much. I'll tell you what R.C. said, but I'll tell you why I disagree. Um, I know what he's doing. In systematic theology, when you hear the term sanctification, what is it? It's a process, right? It's you growing in holiness. But when you read the scripture and you find the word sanctification, it is often in a completed form. That's where Peterson comes in to help. So how should we understand sanctification? So we understand it as a process. Yes. Please, based on what I'm about to share in a little bit, sanctification at times is still a process. There's a dual meaning to the term sanctification, which I want us to understand the second part as well, because it's very important to our spiritual formation. So, spirit, so sanctification is a process, and that's how R.C. teaches it. It's a process that begins at conversion, right? So when you're converted, when you're born again, the Spirit of God is in your heart, is within you. He is making you more holy, which makes a lot of people's testimonies really difficult to kind of unpack. Right? Some of you in this room may have a testimony like this. I'm not, I'm not uh, saying anything about it. But think about how if we understand the term sanctification as something that begins at conversion, you want to see, and, and if you see, if you're leading someone to faith in Christ, you want to see just a growth from that moment moving forward to really evidence, like, no, they are in Christ. <clears throat> so as we look at sanctification, the term throughout the Scriptures it's often understood in our circles and reform circles and, and conferences that we'll go to, whether it be Nine Marks or a, a, a G3 or something like that. Sanctification is being understood as a process. And if sometimes you're reading scripture and you're going, wait a minute, they're using the word sanctification or sanctified, and it doesn't seem like that's a process. It seems like that's a completed event. Peterson's a good resource. A few examples. 1 Corinthians 1-2. This is what Paul says. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ. So it's not to those being sanctified, it's to those sanctified, completed. The verb there is in the completed form. In Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And then again, later in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, as were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. Again, completed. So there's more semantic range, understanding of meaning of this term, than just a process. We'll talk about the process, but I want us to understand that it's not just a process. Last work I have is Hebrews 10.10. And by this, or by that will, we have been sanctified. Again, a completed understanding through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So why do I bring this up? One, because sometimes understanding sanctification is just a process can be confusing if you touch your New Testament and you start to read it seriously. Right? And when you come upon those passages, I don't want you to be confused, to be like, man, I, I've been taught sanctification is a process, it's an ongoing work, and I read this text, and if I input that understanding into the text, it just doesn't make sense. 
So I want us to be comfortable with the semantic range, with the understanding of meaning of the term sanctification. But I also want to expose the beauty of understanding sanctification, not just as a process, but as a punctiliar, singular moment or event. Right? Because it is wonderful. It is wonderful that the truth of the Scripture teaches that you have been made holy. And as R.C. says, but I don't feel holy. But you've been made holy. But I still sin. But you're holy. You're set apart for God. You're His. And there's a moral formation that is happening, the progressive part, but in your core, in your nature, in who you are as a Christian, you are holy. You are able to stand before God where once you weren't. Once you could not stand before God. Now, because of the work of the Spirit, again, nothing that you've done, you've been sanctified. You've been set apart for God. You've been made holy. It's not based on your feelings. It's evidenced by your actions, but it's not based on your actions. Notice the difference there. But it's the truth. You are holy. You are saints, right? Saints are what? The holy ones. One day, this body will be gone, it'll be stripped away, and you'll be given a new body. And you won't have any more of those doubts. You won't have any more of those anxieties. You won't have any more sin. And you'll understand what the Lord did at regeneration, at definitive sanctification, to make you holy. You can stand before the presence of God. Again, it's not because of you. It's not because of how wonderful you are. But it's because of how wonderful He is. He has definitively, permanently, forever made you holy. That's not going to change. Now, in this life, with the years that you have left living out, you are progressively being made holier in your character, in your likeness. I mentioned it. We're going to use bigger words, but words, I think, that are graspable. The first one's understanding a monergistic work. Mono, one, a singular work. I've talked about it a little bit in different terms. But this work of definitive sanctification, of regeneration, of justification... It's a work of God alone. You did nothing to add to your justification. I don't remember who said it, but the only thing you added to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. So it's a single person is working. God alone is working to bring about your regeneration, your justification, and your definitive sanctification. There's no cooperation and effort between man and God in these areas. But... R.C. tells us that this work of progressive sanctification, that's how I'm going to refer to it now because I've kind of dismantled your understanding of sanctification a little bit. Progressive sanctification, it is a work of the Spirit in tandem with the person. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. I'll read this one for us, but it's good to see as well. Philippians chapter 2, I'll be reading verses 13, or 12 and 13. This is what Paul has to say. And again, think, being made holy, being made in my character more like Christ. Paul says this in Philippians 2. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
So you do this. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see the cooperation there? You are to work. God is working. You are to not quench the spirit. You are to pursue the things of God. You are to read the word. You are to go to the assembling of the saints. And God will use those things, and God will continue to work in you to crystallize, to form, to transform your character. Your being has already been transformed, which is a radical thing to really understand, right? How can you say that, Matt? Well, because Paul says it. Because for anyone who's in Christ, they're a what? New creation. Is Paul lying? Is it just some mystical feeling type thing? Or is it real? Are you really a new creation? I would argue you really are a new creation. Not yet perfect, but new. R.C. makes a good point that this transformation is of character. It's not of being, right? So the Spirit is not turning you into a God, contra some other theologies. No, the Spirit is changing your character. He's changing your affections. He's changing your work. But He's not changing you into something that is divine. His work is to conform us into the image of God, but onto the nature of God. In our sanctification, we are, this is a direct quote from him, to be God-like in character, but not in being. And that's good. There is one God, and there will only ever be one God. And praise God, one day we will be like him, not in his being, but in his moral perfection. So a few additional thoughts as our time's ticking down. Oof, I'm actually two minutes over. I'll be very quick. It's 9.45, right? Ish? Okay. I'll be very, very quick. Um, <clears throat> I don't want to leave this section without leaving you with, uh, again, this definite, definitive sanctification, understanding that you've been made new. You have a really, a really a new heart that loves God. Your heart truly loves God. It once was at enmity with him. Today it loves him. And you may sin and you go, oh, do I really love God? Yes, you really love God. You do. And you're loving him more and more day by day. And there's a difference between being wicked as a person and sinning. You're no longer a wicked person. You were, but he made you new. So upon regeneration, our hearts are made new. How does this impact our understanding of sanctification? I give three things. One, it should give you hope. We are able to do the things that please God. You can. You have the power. You have the ability. The Spirit gives you that. Second, it should give us power. We're able to say no to sin. So not only are we able to do the things that God wants us to do, we're able to say no to the things that God doesn't want us to do. Praise God for a spirit, no? And third, it should give us joy. We can and we do delight in the things of God. And here's the last part. It's not a burden. It's a true joy. It's a genuine joy. I don't have enough time for my through the Spirit stuff, but uh, we'll pray and I will be dismissed. Lord, we do thank you. It is a joy. It is a joy to watch you work in our lives as we work with you to become more like Christ. Father, I pray that we'd have a better understanding of your Spirit, that he would work powerfully within us to give us courage and strength, to comfort us in times of need, and to be a comfort to others. 
We thank you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.